Hello everyone, welcome back to the One Talk podcast. You're here with your host, Ryan McCarthy. And before we get into today's episode, if you could please share this podcast around, if you could leave the podcast a rating, it would mean so much to me and it will help this podcast grow, get in the charts, reach more people, to be able to get this resource and information out there into the world and just reach a bigger audience. So if you could do that for me, that would mean so much and is much appreciated. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Mark Williams. Mark is a well-known neuroscientist with over 25 years experience in the field. He has worked with thousands of students, teachers, health professionals, and company directors keen to understand how their brain works, how to perform optimally, and maintain a healthy brain. Mark regularly runs programs on the neuroscience of learning, the neuroscience of emotions, how to hack your habits, how our brain creates our reality, and the impact of modern technologies in our brain. We touch on all those subjects on such a deep level on this episode. There is so much value, so much information, like it is bonkers how much is in this episode, especially with Mark over 25 years experience in the neuroscience world. It's unbelievable. So I'm keen for you all to listen to this episode. I'm keen for you all to dive in. So let's welcome Mark. When I was about 15, my principal told me and my father that I would be in prison or dead by the time I was 25. So, you know, that's sort of where I was headed. Um, And that was my mindset. It wasn't until I was 20, ironically, it wasn't until I was 25 that I went back to school and got my HSC. I went to TAFE um, because I wanted to make a change in my life. And I did, um, yeah, my HSC back then, instead of uh, trying to get a job, you could do, you know, a course and that could, you could still get um, benefits if you were doing it that way. So that's what I did. And there was a physics teacher there that saw something in me that I'd never seen before. Um, And he encouraged me to actually apply for university, not something I'd thought about doing, but he encouraged me to. and it should, that you know literally changed my life. Um, from there, I fell in love with neuroscience. I went on and did a double degree in psychology and in neurophysiology, um, and then a PhD uh, at Monash University. Uh, then did a postdoc at Melbourne University, and then was lucky enough to go to MIT in the US and worked over there at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research, um, yeah, well. learning new uh, imaging techniques so we could scan brains. Uh, look at how humans actually think. Um, I was really lucky because I was at the start of the whole cognitive neuroscience um, world <laughs> that only just really started because we'd only really got uh, access to things like MRIs and EEGs. Um, mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to yeah get a job over it, uh, in the US. Uh, at the, um, so yeah, uh, uh, then I came back to Australia. Um, and worked at um, Macquarie University for a long, long time. Um, and then, yeah, di- didn't like where that was headed. So went out on my own, writing books, working mm. with schools, working with businesses, trying to get um, what we now know about the brain out into the world, make the world a little bit healthier. Um, because I think brain health is something we really need to work on. Um, mm. I think we as men, especially need to work on it more. I think, you know, there's a lot of, uh, where I grew up, you know, there was a lot of 
aggression, um, a lot of men couldn't be themselves um, and that causes a lot of angst as well. So I think that's a really important issue as well that we need to start tackling. Um, mm. I've now got kids and, you know, I want them to have a, an easier life uh, than I did to begin with. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of my story in a nutshell. Oh, that's an awesome journey that's brought you to where you are now. And did you always know, like, as soon as you started studying psychology and neuroscience, did you know that was the path for you as soon as you started to delve into that world? Uh, no, not really. Um, to be honest, there was, a, there was a stage there after I did my PhD, I started working at Melbourne University. Uh, and, and it's a really, it, I don't think people realise how cutthroat uh, research is. Um, because there's very little money and everybody's trying to get that very small pot of money that's out there. Um, and so I was applying for, for fellowships to go to the US to work at MIT because it really was my dream. And, and I decided that if I didn't get the fellowship, which was very prestigious fellowship, I don't know what I was thinking actually even applying for it, but if I didn't get the fellowship, um, then I would go and work at Pixar. Pixar was very new at that stage um, and I loved coding, um, coding a lot of different languages, which was, you know, very much a necessity back then. Um, and so, yeah, at that stage, I was like, well, I'm either going to go this way or that way. But but then again, doing things like, like Pixar really is all about neuroscience in itself, right? Because you're really tricking the brain into thinking that these characters that are on the screen, which are just, you know, still pictures in a row, <laughs> Right, lots and lots and lots of thousands of them tricking your brain into into thinking that that's actually a character that's moving around and thinking and has emotions and all of those things. So, I mean, that's very much you know neuroscience and and what we we study anyway. So, it sort of was neuroscience, but not really. Um, that's really interesting yeah. because they do create like <laughs> emotional attachments to the person watching in the movie itself, and actually thinking about the psychology behind that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's amazing. I mean, you think about the Pixar, um, I don't know if you remember, but I don't know if they still use it, but they used to use um, like a lamp um, moving and the lamp used to move and it'd look up and and it felt like it had emotions, right? It, you yeah. actually got attached to this and it's just a lamp <laughs> moving around with, you know, and obviously it has uh, uh, body movements rather than uh mechanical movements which is why make you makes your brain automatically thinks that it's human rather than than machine um yeah which is yeah fascinating that our brain does that what were some of the most interesting takeaways from working with pixar and the neuroscience behind that yeah so i never got to work with them um it was something that i, I was thinking about doing um but i, I i'm always fascinated i've always been fascinated with um that whole genre of of um the media because they they're amazing at, at tricking our brains into thinking that you know these these characters are are real and that they're actually have emotions and all of these sorts of things and so they use a lot of the tricks and a lot of the time they don't actually realize it i have a a good friend who was a harvard professor uh, he's now a professor over in um in uh at Rome, I think, university. But he he studies, um, you know, the ancient, don't, don't, they're not ancient, old um, uh, artists and how they used 
tricks in their pictures to to get perception of 3D and how to get perception of of you know different times of the day and all these things that again our brains do automatically and it's amazing how many artists actually do it and a lot of them do it without actually realizing they're doing it um, but yeah it's, it's because you've got to remember that our perception isn't real right what we see and what we feel and what we touch and smell and all those things isn't actually what's out there it's what our brains are creating based on the input that we're getting so you know when i talk to you my voice box is is moving which is moving air and that causes a wave in the air which then moves um your eardrum which then moves three little bones which moves another little membrane which then moves your cochlea which moves your hair cell which pushes it up against the tympanic membrane which then causes an electrical signal that goes into your brain and then your brain decides that it's going to create an illusion that you've heard a noise but mm. there is no noise my voice doesn't create it my voice box doesn't create a noise it creates a wave and then your brain then creates this illusion that there is a noise out there in the world because that's what's important for you. And so artists have to either implicitly or explicitly realize what our brains are doing to create those illusions, what tricks that they're using to actually then create these illusions that we see when we look at photos or pictures or um, movies or you know, Pixar creating their funny little characters and so on. Um, yeah, which really fascinates me that they use all these tricks because our brain's just made up of lots and lots of rules and it uses those rules to create this illusion that we see, um, mm. which is based on all of those rules that we have in our brain that we've learned. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I think that that whole area really does fascinate that's, me. Yeah, that fascinates me a lot too. That's so interesting because it shows that the world can influence how we feel. Like for an example, we watch Pixar can influence our emotions, right? And does that also translate with the environments we put ourselves in? So the environments we put ourselves in can influence how we feel and instill like core beliefs in us too. Yeah, absolutely. So most of, I mean, there's been a lot over the last 25, 30 years, a lot of talk about our genetics and how much, you know, our genetic genetics influences who we are, but it's actually very little. There's, very little um, stuff in our genetics that actually influences our behavior and influences our perception. The vast majority of it is, is learned and it's learned based on what you actually do and what you perceive. So you surround yourself with happy people, you will feel happier. You surround yourself with angry people, you will feel angrier. Um, we know that for multiple reasons. One, um, you when, when, when we look at someone else, we automatically perceive their facial expressions based on uh, an automatic response in us. So there's a mirror neuron system in our brain, which we only discovered back in 2002. Um, but there's areas of our brain which mimic what we're actually seeing. So uh, the original studies were done with monkeys and it was just basically a monkey was picking up a peanut and another monkey was watching the monkey pick up a peanut. And when the monkey picked up the peanut, the other monkey's brain in their motor areas, which would be which would cause them to pick up the peanut all activated as though they were actually picking up the peanut themselves, which helped them understand what the monkey was actually doing. Now that's how we, we understand what other people are doing. We activate the same areas of our brain, which would cause us to do that same thing. But that also happens for um, our emotions. So when we see someone smile, we activate the same muscles or the same motor plan in our brain, which under, activates those muscles in our face 
so that we then get the same emotion as that person's having so we then understand what they're actually feeling so we that's how we have empathy that's how we understand other people so if you smile at someone you're actually making them happier just by smiling at them because they will smile slightly in themselves and in their muscles and we know that there's under activation of those muscles when you see someone smile so by surrounding yourself with people who are positive who are smiling you'll actually be happier yourself or by smiling at someone you will actually be happier yourself and when i work with especially teenagers because teenagers you know often get themselves into difficult situations and when i talk to teenagers i'm i always go through this idea that when you want to talk to someone about a difficult situation or something that's gone wrong or an argument you've had approach them with a smile because if you approach them with a smile they'll automatically smile as well inside them you they'll get dopamine and serotonin oxytocin all these really good neurotransmitters released in their brain so they'll feel happier so the conversation you have is going to be more positive when you start whatever conversation it is whereas you know as we all know hanging out with teenagers um if they're feeling grumpy they show it um and so when they approach someone to actually have a conversation about something they're, they're pissed off about they'll come into it as a grump um and so the other person will be grumpy before they even start the interaction which means it's not going to go well so you know we need to realize that that we're actually influencing each other constantly um, and when we're in the same room as people that's going to have an effect and that's why you get big crowds of people you know the crowd changes really quickly because you'll get a small group that'll get angry over whatever and then that'll spread throughout the group because of this mirror neuron system this automatic perception of what's actually happening around us and a lot of people don't even realize it's happened you know all of a sudden they've got angry and done stupid things and then they turn around and go wow i you know don't even know how that happened we're all having fun and it was all good and it was good vibe and then all of a sudden you know it turned mad but yeah it is who's around you and that that happens every day all the time constantly but you've also got an adaptation occurring as well so the the happier you are the happier the easier it is to get to that happier state uh, because of adaptation um when i teach kids i i often do a little experiment with them where i'll get like three buckets of water and if you get a you know a hot bucket of water a medium temperature bucket of water and a cold bucket of water and you get them to put their hand in the really cold bucket of water and then their other hand in the really hot bucket of water and leave it there for 30 seconds your your body nor your brain adapts to that right and so this they both start to feel the same and then if you put them both in the medium one the one that was in the cold one feels much hotter than the one that was in the hot one because both of them have adapted to that and our brains are constantly adapting our perception of the world based on the things that are happening to us some some of that's short term and some of it's long term and so if you're constantly happy you're going to be happier more likely to be happy as you go forward if you're constantly angry then you're more likely to be angry as you go forward because your brain is adapted to that and will keep that state and he's more likely to transition back to that state. So yeah, we need to surround ourselves by happy people and we need to be try to be happy as much as we possibly can. And as I say, I don't know who said it, but I heard a quote recently, which was, you know, the, the happiest person in, in the room is always the one that wins, right? And it's like, you know, if you're going to, if you, doesn't matter what you're doing, you know, if you're that, if you enjoy it, if you're have, having fun doing it, then, then you win, right? Regardless of whether you actually win or not. Yeah, that's so true because like even in the past, if I've ever gone into a room on the environment where I probably haven't been happy stepping to that environment, but the environment's happy, 
just like my energy just raises up to that level, just being around those people. And it does really show the importance of being around those type of people. And you think it's also important to continue finding new environments so your perception doesn't get comfortable on one. Because like you said, things can be happy for one moment and then the next it can go negative and be like, oh, what happened here? Do you think it's important to keep searching for new environments over time? Yeah, so we do. We, we are driven to uh, search out um, for differences so changes we're always looking for something different so which is why you know your reality tv programs are so popular not i'm not i'm not endorsing them but i'm just saying that they are really popular because they're constantly changing right and we are extremely curious as a as a, a species and that's why we've you know gone all the way around the world and we've you know, because we've, we've wanted to know what's over the hill or what's you know in the next valley or what's you know happening over there that we're missing out on um which is why we want to watch those reality tv shows because we want to know what's happening and they have to keep changing what they're doing in those shows so that they keep you interested in them um and that's because our brains are curious they're constantly looking for differences and changes which is why you know we all like to go on a holiday and go somewhere different and go and experience new things and experience differences um and and that's why depression can be so bad because depression really does start to close you down and causes a, a melancholy in you which means that you're unlikely to 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 want to go out and do those things, which then means that you're not getting that extra benefit of doing those things, which is going to activate a lot of your brain and release a lot of good neurotransmitters, which is going to make you feel better. So that's why they, people get into these negative spirals with depression or mental health issues, because um, it does close them down and they're less likely to seek out those new experiences. And so therefore they're less likely to get those really good experiences and the extra neurotransmitters. Which yeah. is why when we do things like CBT and stuff, we get them to actually go out and do stuff. We get them to interact. Yeah, wow. And talking about happiness there too, I feel like a lot of the world at the moment is striving for happiness. Do you think that's something we should strive for is happiness? Because happiness is an emotion, whether that's long-term or not, is um, probably debatable. But what's your perspective on chasing happiness? <laughs> yeah, I have a really good colleague. We, we actually... Um, did our PhDs around the same time. He studied happiness for a long time, um, but he, he's uh, he's got a great book called um, The Other Side of Happiness, um, Brock Bastian, and um, he studied a lot of people who who are really happy, and he's shown that pe the happy people who are really happy and sustain happiness are people who have had really awful traumas in their lives because there's a flip side to it um, in that you can't just be happy all the time otherwise it, you've got nothing to to measure it to you need to have bad times so that you can feel how good the happy times are you need to go through the trauma to have a um and, and he talks about things like like marathon runners like marathon runners aren't extremely ecstatic when they finish a marathon uh, because they finished the marathon it's because they ran the marathon they went through all that hard stuff to get to the end or you know climbing climbing a mountain um you know if you got a helicopter and got flown to the top of the mountain you, you might find the scenery pretty but you won't get the same bars as if you actually climb the mountain because you go through all that stress and that you know difficulty actually getting to the top and they've they've shown you know people who went through awful awful things during uh, wars and so on they end up being much happier later on in life because of the fact that they've gone through those really bad traumas so i think we need to be really careful 
not to focus too much on the happiness, but rather focus on things that, that, that make us happy. And those things are usually things that are difficult, you know, I, I, I cause some sort of angst. You know, I, I love surfing. I get a big buzz out of surfing. Um, but, you know, to surf, you've got to be willing to actually go out into the ocean and, you know, get slammed sometimes and you get caught inside sometimes and you get, you know, completely smashed sometimes. And that's part of the process, you know. You've got to go out surfing on the bad days and the cold days and all those sorts of things as well to get those amazing, brilliant days when you've got, you know, six-foot waves and it's offshore and yeah. you know, there's only a couple of you out there, yeah. So do you think happiness is then relinked to like a reward for going through something and happiness is the end result of that? Yeah, yeah, I really do. I think real happiness is real happiness is is that whole process of of doing something that is rewarding, of doing something which is important to do, and so therefore is difficult, but your end result is really, really rewarding. Um, mm. So yeah, we need to realize that we need to to go through those trials sometimes. Actually, have that true. Yeah, that's so true. Cause like if I could snap my fingers now and wake up tomorrow absolutely shredded, like I wouldn't be as happy as I would <laughs> if I actually put in a planned train for six months and got there. And at the end of that six months, look at myself and be like, fuck, I actually am so happy that I went through all of that and achieved this. So like the level of happiness is so much more superior too. Yeah, yeah. And you look at people like you know, talking about, you know, shredding yourself, Dwayne Johnson, you know, you look at the mm. the amazing routines he does in the gym right i mean he actually smashes himself um and that must be agony the stuff that he lifts and the amount of reps he does and all the rest of it and he does it day in day out but then he has these days you know once a week where he just goes and, and enjoys the fact that he's had a really you know tough week in the gym and all the rest of it and he has his days of, of um, eating whatever he wants or whatever but you know, he, he's amazingly happy, right? Whenever you see him, he's got a huge smile on his face. He makes fun of himself. He's in a lot of good comedies and all the rest. And he's probably also pretty happy because he's got a huge amount of money. Um, but there are people out there who, who have a huge amount of money who aren't happy, um, mm. whereas he, he is because I think he goes through that every day um, and has that trial, um, but then has this great... He also, of course, had trials when he was a kid as well, things like that, is, you know, which probably also goes to that happiness yeah. that he has yeah do you think with happiness at the moment it's a bit harder to achieve because of how easy accessible dopamine is with things like mobile phones and um gaming consoles and etc <laughs> yeah i i think we the problem is it's not that's not happiness that's you know the the hit of dopamine isn't actually making you it's not true happiness. It's not long-term. It's not sustainable. Um, so in the book I've recently written, I, I talk about um, the difference between um, the, the the dopamine hit we get from being online or from gaming or from you know, being on social media uh, versus the, the real hit that we get when we actually socialise with people. So when you, when you are online or when you're... Um, gaming or when you're you know on social media you get dopamine released in your brain which which gives you a short-term hit and 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 they 
and therefore you're looking for more of it and more of it and more of it, which is why we get addicted to it. And it's exactly the same as from gambling or for, for drugs and all those things. Whereas when you actually socialise with someone in person, face to face, which is actually the healthiest thing you can do as far as mental health is concerned, it's better than any drug you can do, is actually just to sit down with someone and chat to them. But when you do that, you get dopamine released, but you also get um, oxytocin released and oxytocin is mainly released because we, when we touch each other. So we as primates have uh, C fibers, C fibers in our skin um, and those C fibers act, activate an area of our brain which releases oxytocin and we only have those fibers for touch. It's only so that we can actually touch each other and get that release of oxytocin so that we will actually touch each other and in all societies we have some sort of um, routine around touching each other appropriately when we actually meet. So, you know, Stoic societies like us, we shake hands, whereas, you know, in Europe and stuff, they'll kiss each other on the cheek. Even Inuits who have all of their bodies covered up because they're so cold will rub noses because it's only part of their bodies that are actually, uh, you know, open to actually rub against each other. But when you do that, you release oxytocin and oxytocin actually makes you uh, calmer, it makes you more open, it makes you more willing to help someone, it makes you more connected to the person. So it's a really, really good neurotransmitter for actually getting that relationship going, actually feeling good about it. You don't get that when you're online because there's no touch associated with being online. And then there's also serotonin, which isn't, you don't get much serotonin at all when you're online because of the fact that you're online and you're not getting that extra interaction. You don't see their body language. You don't see, you don't mimic each other. So again, those mirror neurons are there. And one of the things they actually do is they get us to mimic each other's body language so that we feel more connected with each other. But because you can't see the whole body when you're online or often it's just a photo or it's just, you know, um, some somebody taking a picture or you're gaming or something and so therefore you're not looking at the person who you're actually interacting with, um, you don't get that as well. You don't get that mimicking the mm. body language and so therefore you don't get that extra serotonin and stuff. So you, you ha basically have um, an abnormal um, amount of neurotransmitters being released. You have all this dopamine being released, but you don't have all the, all the other stuff. And yeah, in the book, what I talk about is it's like having fast food versus having a home-cooked meal, you know. When we do it online, it's like just going to McDonald's and ordering fast food. Fast food. It's really easy to do um, and it gives you a little buzz, but then you feel shit for the yeah. next 24 hours because it doesn't actually help and you get a depression afterwards. Exactly the same as being online. Whereas actually making a home-cooked meal, it actually takes more effort, but it's actually much better for you long-term and it'll end up, you'll feel better and you'll you'll have better interactions and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's it's definitely something where a lot of people are chasing um, happiness online, but you're never going to get it. You've got to actually get out there in the real world. You've got to actually interact with each other face-to-face because -face. we've got millions of years of evolution and our brains have evolved all these really cool mechanisms to, to get us to interact with each other socially in person. Um, and you can't override that in one or two, you know, one generation, less than one generation, 10, 15 years, right? We're trying to reprogram our whole brains in, in one generation. It's going to take thousands of generations to actually reprogram it. And I don't think we want to reprogram it because it's actually not healthy for us. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I related to a lot of that because when I used to, before I became aware of like the effects of what social media was having on me, I used to scroll just until I'll go to sleep, wake up the next day, absolutely knackered, even if I had eight hours sleep. And I was like, why is this happening? And then I stopped doing the scrolling at night. 
and I started to feel better. Instead, now I listen to like binaural beats before I go to sleep and I'll put them in as headphones for like an hour. Um, do you see, uh, have you seen any research around listening to binaural beats or music before going to sleep and the effects of it? Yeah, music's awesome. Um, so we've been, you know, using music in some way or another for for thousands, probably millions of years, um, and, and it's really, really good uh, for getting your brain in sync. And our brains, basically, our brains, the, the different areas of our brains are all in sync with each. Should be all in sync with each other, so they can interact with each other. When one turns on, while the other one turns off, so then the other one can turn on while this one, so that they can all talk to each other. And, and that's what we talk about the brain waves and this this yeah. waves that we get throughout our brain. <clears throat> and it's been shown that you actually sink your brain actually sinks in with the music that you're actually listening to. So your brain waves will change based on the music that you're listening to, and th and those sorts of things like brain waves um, and, and other um forms of music will actually help with that you know um, classical music will also help with that will actually get your brain into a state which is better for sleeping and better for rest and so on and relaxation um so yeah music's awesome for that because it will get you into that more rhythmic state and it'll get your brain all synced up and so you're more likely to sleep um and because we have different waves so there's there's alpha beta gamma waves which our brains go through at different stages. The alpha waves are actually what happens when we're in a meditative state or when we're going into sleep state. And so that's what you want to get into. And those those rhythms or those tracks will get you into or easily more easily get you into those brain states that'll that'll help you sleep. Yeah, well, because because when I need to become creative or I'm doing something work related that um, needs creativity and flow. Usually I'll listen to like theta brainwave state binaural beats implemented with breath work. Is that something that is utilized and can be beneficial for creativity? Yeah, absolutely. So you, your breath work um, is what actually slows us down. So, you know, our brain and, and our body is really the same thing. I, I don't, you know, to talk about your brain, and your body is two different things is pretty crazy because your brain is your part of your body, right? It's another organ and they all work together. Um, and so when you breathe in and you breathe out, so breathing in actually, um, although um, it feels, it, it, it slows, well, it activates areas of your brain, your, your um, vagus nerve and stuff, which then slows down your heart when you actually slow down your breathing. If you're breathing deeply and then breathe out deeply, that'll actually slow down your heart. And so your heart's beating more slowly, but more strong. Um, oxygenated blood going through your body because you've got the extra um, oxygen from the, the deep breaths and then the blood going through your lungs and so therefore you get more and, and that's really important because your brain uses a lot of oxygen um, our brains use 25 percent of the oxygen that we have throughout our body and it's only a small part of our body so it's actually ratio wise it's actually a lot of the blood and a lot of the energy that we actually use so using those things to actually slow down your thoughts and so you can actually think more deeply is really important if you want to do the creative work and it's interesting because <clears throat> creativity um we believe a lot of creativity actually comes when we're asleep rather than when we're awake and by slowing yourself down what you're doing is you're really just accessing your long-term memory because we don't have conscious access to our long-term memory so the what we're aware of what you're 
conscious of is your working memory, and that's really limited. It's really limited in its actual ability. Um, and then you have long-term memory, which is, we think, you know, is limitless. But your long-term memory is where a lot of creativity comes from because you don't have a, a, um, enough capacity in your working memory to actually do that. That's why you have these little brain um, sparks, you know, you go, oh, you know, something will just come to you or something, yeah, and when you actually moment. get into that state. Yeah, yeah, you have those light bulb moments, it just flashes off. And that's, we think, because at night time, you're actually being creative, you're actually coming up with all of those ideas, because your brain goes through different states at night, and one of those states is it goes in fast forward, um, what you've actually done during the day and it goes through lots and lots of scenarios of what you could have done better that day and so if you spend time thinking about something today uh, but you don't come up with a solution to it and then you sleep on it for a couple of nights um, then you'll probably come up with a solution for it so actually stopping um, and allowing yourself to have rest or you know have sleep time in between um, periods of trying to be productive or trying to be creative will actually result in more creativity because your brain at night's going through all those interesting things. And supposedly um, Thomas Edison, when he didn't have any good ideas, um, you know, he's an amazing inventor and invented lots and lots of, so I keep hitting that mic. <laughs> he had lots and lots of ideas and every time um, he um, didn't have a good idea. He had a couch in his in his office, and he'd sit down on the couch, and he had a bunch of ball bearings which he put in his hand, and he had a big saucepan beside his couch, and he'd put the ball bearings in his hand, and he'd go to sleep on the couch. And when you go into REM sleep, all your muscles actually relax so that you don't move because you're going through all these different scenarios. So he would relax, and he'd drop the ball bearings, and they'd fall into the saucepan, which would wake him up. And then he'd actually, that's when he had all these good ideas, all these inventions came to him because he was having them while he was actually sleeping. Yeah, wow. And then because he woke himself up halfway through, he'd actually remember those. And that's where, yeah, where he came up with a lot of his inventions was doing that little trick so that he would, uh, yeah, remember what he was actually thinking. That's so interesting because um, the old saying, I'll sleep on it makes so much yeah. sense now so it's actually a fact <laughs> yeah and absolutely absolutely you got to sleep on it which is why when i work with organizations i talk about the fact that you shouldn't get people into an office into a, into a room and say okay we're going to brainstorm this new idea to come up with ideas i mean that's what the way most organizations do it right they get someone in they go oh we've got this new project and we've all got to brainstorm and say let's go it's the worst way to actually do creativity because none of those people who have just been told what the new idea is or the new thing is have had any time to sleep on it and so mm -hmm. what you really should do is send it all out to them and say this is stuff we're going to talk about next week or in a couple of days time you know have a think about it now sleep on it a few nights then come in and they'll have much better ideas when they actually come in after they've slept on it a few days rather than trying to get these brainstorming sessions going which are pretty useless most of the time because of the fact that none of them have had the opportunity to sleep on it and they're all working from that uh, working memory which is really limited rather than being able to use that long-term memory which is pretty unlimited yeah, that actually goes to like something I've found in myself is if I try to think of something on the spot, it feels like my brain's trying to scramble it all together and pick pieces together. But if I actually have a couple of days to um, think about it, I feel like then I have more insight of what I'm actually going to say and I'm actually able to articulate what's going on in my brain and actually verbalize it a lot more easier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whenever I'm doing a presentation or whatever i'll usually talk to whoever it is that i'm going to be working with um, and have a chat with them and then i'll just put it away 
and I won't look at it again for a couple of days, and then I'll come back to it, and then I then I'll have lots of good ideas because they'll all have been re, you know gurgitating in my head, not a proper word, but anyway, gurgitating in my head um, when I've been sleeping for a couple of nights, and, and I don't have to do any work, right? It's it's a bit of a bit of a cheat because I'm doing it while I'm sleeping, um, and then a couple of days later I'll be like, oh, that's that's a great idea, or this is a great idea, let's do it that way or whatever. Yeah, is NSDR beneficial to this as well? Like non-sleep deep rest. So it's like a form of yoga that I've been seeing a lot of people talk about online, this non-sleep deep rest. And it's like it's like a way to access that deep sleep REM state to be able to get similar effects. I've never tried it myself. It's just something I've seen. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. I haven't heard that one. There you go. I can spend more time online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't heard of that one. I mean, things like meditation, uh, yoga. I used to do a lot of yoga. I should do a lot more. Um, are, are all really good, but again, it's getting you into those really deep states where your brain has time to actually think in that long-term memory. Because that's what we want is we want the long-term memory areas to actually have time to think rather than us being busy all the time. And that's that's the biggest problem in society at the moment, I think, is that and especially all the organisations I work with, there's everybody's busy, but no one's getting anything done. We're less productive these days than we've ever been in the past, yet we've got all these productivity tools that none of them actually work and none of them really work very well. Um, because of the fact they just make you more busy. Um, and we know these things are making us more busy. And we have our you know, our emails on all the time and we have our or teams on and all these things which are constantly distracting us. And so therefore we're not actually getting anything done. Yeah. And then we all feel exhausted at the end of the day and we've all worked really hard at basically running around and around and around in circles and not getting anything done. So what's some things we could do to increase productivity? Because I feel like a lot of people that have worked in the corporate world have been to those team meetings to go for like an hour, an hour and a half, but only about 20 minutes of it is actually productive. <laughs> yeah. So what's some things we could do to increase productivity? Yeah, me meetings is an easy is an easy fix. You should never have a presentation in a meeting. So, you know, it, what you should do is anybody who's going to do a presentation, because we've got these amazing you know, computers and everything these days, everyone's got one. What, what you should do is record, the person who's going to do the presentation should record the presentation and email it out to everyone who's going to the meeting a, a day, two days, three days before the meeting actually happens. And then people can just watch that that, that presentation whenever they want to actually watch it, whenever they have time. Um, and that then frees up the meeting to actually just talk about what the presentation was about. And so you can cut down your meetings a huge amount by just getting rid of all the presentations that people do in those meetings, have them on video and people can watch them. It also means people can watch them a day or two before so then they can sleep on it so that when they come into the meeting, they'll actually have better questions and I'll have more better ideas around that idea. So, I mean, that's a good way to cut down your meeting so your meetings are much briefer. Having a meeting with more than two or three people is also pretty much a waste of time because yeah. they're, they're usually in that sort of group. If you've got 10 people in a group, you will have two or three people in that group who are going to dominate that meeting and they're going to actually say most of the stuff. And most of the people in there are going to be wasting their time sitting there just listening to these people who like to talk. So you really should cut down your meetings and make sure your meetings only have two or three people at a time to keep people who need to be there. And then your email, again, email maybe a video or something out of the meeting so other people who maybe you know, needed to know what was going on, but um, didn't actually need to be there, 
can actually look at that when they've actually got time. One of the crucial things is actually getting rid of all your notifications. So our working memory, which I was talking about before, is what we're actually thinking about at any one point in time. And your working memory, you've actually got to hold information in your working memory long enough so that it gets transferred to this little temporary store. So it then can be transferred to your long-term memory so that when you're sleeping, you can come up with new good ideas because that's actually where all the great ideas come from. To do that, you've got to hold it in there for long enough. If you get distracted by something, if there's a beep or a buzz or you know you get a little ting or whatever, then when that happens, you lose everything that's in your working memory and you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing. So every time your email dings or every time a little icon comes up or it goes from one to two or 110 to 120 or whatever, every time your uh, your smartphone rings, every time your smartphone vibrates, every time your smartphone dings, every time anything happens on your smartphone, you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing. Um, and so getting rid of all your notifications, getting rid of all your notifications off your laptops and all those sorts of things and off your phone so that it doesn't ding and it doesn't buzz and all those sorts of things means that you get a huge amount of time back, right? Because you're not losing that 90 seconds every time that happens. And so that's another way of being productive. Yeah. Um, is to get rid of notifications. Um, also, then what you do is you, you factor into your day when you're going to check your email or when you're going to check your social media. Now, we know that checking your email two or three times a day improves your mental health significantly compared to actually just randomly checking it when you want to check it or having notifications coming up. So having a time or multiple times during the day when you're going to do those things and doing them then rather than doing them when you get the notifications, which is what most people do. Yeah, well, A, improve your mental health, but E, B, it'll get back all that time that you're actually losing every time those things sting. So that'll also increase your mental health. Um, another cool one is Pomodoro technique. I don't know if you've heard of Pomodoro no, not technique. Before. Yeah, so Pomodoro technique, it's, uh, Pomodoro is um, tomato in Italian. And the, the researchers originally just used these tomato timers that you use in a kitchen in, in Italy. Um, and it's been studied now for about probably 60 years. And basically, you just set a timer for 25 minutes. And for that 25 minutes, you just focus on one task and you get rid of all other distractions. You've got to get rid of all other distractions. Focus on one task for 25 minutes. As soon as the, the, the buzzer goes off, you then get up and move around. You do push-ups or sit-ups or whatever, some sort of movement, you know, um, yeah. for five minutes. And then you come back and you start again. You've got to stop as soon as 25 minutes comes because during that five minutes, you, you work, you, you, your long-term memory will actually work on what you're doing. So then when you sit down again, you'll actually start much quicker because A, you're halfway through whatever you're doing, but B, your long-term memory will have actually worked out a few things for you. It's really, really cool. It's amazing when you actually do it. And then you do it for another 25 minutes. And the idea is you do that four times, which is two hours. And then after that two hours, then you can do other things and you have a bigger break for 25, 30 minutes. And it's been shown to be the most productive way to actually set out your day, especially if you're trying to be creative, but for getting anything done, it's actually been shown to be the most productive way to set out your day. And I always do at least two hours of that each day. And I get more done during that two hours than I do for the rest of the day because you're actually able to concentrate and get real work done and you get into a real flow when you do it. And after you get used to it, it's amazing. As soon as you set the timer going, whether you use, you know, I, I have a, a yellow timer that I use, but, you know, you can also, there's little apps that you can download. 
it'll do it for you too. But you've got to have it so that you can see it. And, and yeah, it's really, really good way to actually get shit done yeah. and get a lot of stuff done. So the short-term benefits would be more productivity and creativity, but what are the long-term benefits from that? Because it sounds like you get less stress, it'll improve your mental health. Is that correct? Yeah, it'll improve your mental health. You're much less stressed. It'll actually give you um, exercise. So we know our brains are use it or lose it. So it's just like any other muscle. So you've got to constantly exercise all of the different abilities that you have. Otherwise, they slowly atrophy. And one of the abilities that it's been shown we're actually losing is our ability to attend to one thing at a time and not get distracted constantly. But if you're doing this for 25 minutes at a time, you're exercising that ability as well, which means that then when you actually do, when you are, you know, sitting in a, in a meeting or you're talking to somebody or you're at a party or whatever, you won't get as distracted as easily because that muscle, that attention muscle, you've actually exercised and you're exercising regularly. So it'll be really strong. So you'll be able to attend better as well. So you won't get distracted by other things as easily which is also a real positive because you know people find it really stressful when they're constantly getting distracted by things around them i mean you know you know parents who you know snap at their kids because their kids are making noise and they're getting distracted all the time and that's really not the kids fault that's their fault because their attention mechanisms aren't strong enough for them to concentrate on one thing and ignore all that other stuff is there any other exercises we could do on the mind for attention and focus that we could practice yeah so anything that gets you to actually just focus on one thing at a time is really really good for that playing a musical instrument is actually one way which is really good because because when you play a musical instrument you are really concentrating on that one thing when you're learning something new if you're actually already really good at, at a song and you're just playing it automatically that's not so good but if you're actually really concentrating on learning something new then that'll actually hold your attention and therefore exercise that area. So that's something which is really, really good for your attention mechanism. But yeah, doing anything which really holds your attention but doesn't capture your attention. So doing mm -hmm. things like video games and stuff, they're actually designed to capture your attention, yeah? So they're actually making, they're not exercising it, they're making it worse because you're not using it because you're constantly being captured by all of lights and sounds and everything that's out there rather than being able to hold it within. So not doing video games, you know, avoiding those things, avoiding social media, which again is constantly capturing your attention because those feeds are designed to keep you on the thing. So capture your attention, which means that you're not using your attentional mechanisms to actually hold your attention. So yeah, avoiding things which capture your attention, but yeah, doing things that actually hold your attention, which gets you to stay. Reading also is really good because again, when you're reading, you're trying to keep yourself focused on one thing, which, which isn't capturing your attention, but rather requires you to to attend to something. So reading either nonfiction or fiction is also a really, really good thing to do to hold that. Yeah. And touching on social media there too, because obviously there's not my, I'm not from my awareness, you will have more insight than me, but it's probably not too much research on it because it's such a new concept in the world, social media. And is there any studied long-term negative effects from social media that we need to be aware of? Uh, significant mental health issues with social media. So it's been shown that um, there was a, a neat study came out of China a couple of years ago where they had two groups of people. Um, neither of them had any social media groups. They got one group 
to actually sign up to social media and the other one didn't. And they showed significant impacts on their mental health after only four weeks of actually having a social media account. Wow. So it, it does have a significant effect on, on um, your mental health, just having social media account. Uh, we also know that it, it, in both boys and girls, it can cause body dysmorphic disorders. So body dysmorphic disorders are where you don't perceive your body as it actually is, but you perceive it as more abnormal than it actually is. And then you can, um, it, it results in things like anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia nervosa and things like that, which is what I researched for quite a while. And so that has been shown to cause those disorders as well. And you're much more likely to end up with one of those disorders if you're on social media. Um, yeah, depression is increasing depression. The people who are on social media have less friends than people who aren't on social media. So it's not social at all. Uh, it shouldn't be called social media because there's nothing social about it. What you're doing is you're viewing other people's uh, pretend lives um, on social media. So we need to be really careful with it. Um, and you need to limit it. I mean, I'm on social media, but you know, again, I, I factor into my day a time where I go onto social media and post things associated with my business and then I, I go off and I don't use it otherwise because it is a good way to advertise, but that's all it really is, right? All you're really doing on social media is advertising. People are either advertising themselves or they're advertising their organization or they're advertising their business, but there's nothing social about it and we shouldn't be using it as a social medium because there's there's no social aspect to it. You know, if, if you wanna, advertise that you're having a social event then that sure that's a way of advertising something um, but then the social event is actually going to meeting someone and so we yeah. really need to spend more time yeah face to face is that also having an impact on our dopamine that gets produced too yeah so because we get hits of dopamine whenever we get a like, I mean, that's why they have the likes on social media is because they know that that's the addictive component to it. And, and yeah. organizations like so, um, Facebook have actually acknowledged that they hold off on your likes. So you don't actually get your likes when someone likes a post. They send the likes when it's optimal for the release of dopamine. So we know and we've known for a long time that um, there's these intermittent reinforcement or um, yeah, intermittent reinforcement schedules that you can um, implement, which will get people addicted to something much more quickly. And so they send your likes based on those intermittent reinforcement schedules to make sure that you get addicted as quickly as you possibly can. So the likes is what causes the addiction. Um, and also, of course, the comments and things like that, how many comments you have and things like that. And so they'll actually post those, they'll send those to you in a way that actually optimizes that. And then of course, if you're not getting any likes or anything like that, then they'll send you emails about, hey, you haven't been on Facebook for a while or anything like that. And again, yeah. they'll send those at a time which is optimal for you to actually get the most amount of dopamine. And, and as I was always saying before, your brain adapts constantly, right? And so if you're getting hits of dopamine all the time, then your brain will then adapt and require more dopamine to get the same high from that, to get the same amount of joy. So you need more dopamine, the more dopamine you get, which is one of the reasons why you've got to you know, have periods of, 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 of struggle to have periods of great high, because when you have the periods of struggle, you're not getting a lot of dopamine. So your body's adapting to that. And then when you do get a little bit of dopamine, it feels like you're getting a lot more than what you actually are because of your brain adapting. When you're on social media all the time, you're getting all these little hits all the time, which 
means your brain adapts to that and expects all those hits all the time. So we do have a generation now that are expecting all those hits and need more hits to actually get the same amount of joy out of life, which is why we now, I think, have this mental health crisis because these people, their brains have adapted to an expectation of having a lot more dopamine than what really is healthy. Um, and they're not getting that out in the real world. And so therefore they go back to the social media or back to the computers to avoid um, a real real world, which is yeah. not good because you're missing out on all those others. You're really good in neurotransmitters that we actually need. Yeah, that makes so sense because back when we we're hunter and gatherers, we used to have to go out and hunt for days to then be able to bring the food back to the tribe, then cook, and then we'll get the dopamine. And it's more of a reward getting the dopamine and it's just instant gratification or instant dopamine hit. Yeah, and it's exactly, I mean, it's the same as, you know, the food we've got now, right? We've got all this food now. Uh, um, and therefore, you know, we, we we evolved for millions of years in a state where, where food was a scarce resource, which we needed. And when we got it, we ate it because it was really important. Now we have cupboards full of food. We have fast food restaurants. We have food everywhere, right? And so we're all obese and we're all putting on too much weight and we all have too much because of the fact that it's just there all the time and we're eating all the time. And again, the dopamine, right? We, we've got these these things which are in our pockets where we can get these little dopamine hits whenever we want. And so we're going for it whenever we want. And that's not healthy for us to have that. We've actually got to hold off, hold off long enough that we actually get it in a way which is really good. And we need to get it in combination with those other neurotransmitters, which we don't get when we're on these devices. What's some of the things we could implement in today's world with things like social media, with things like all the food access, what some of the things or practices we could do to be able to not fall into the trap of this easy dopamine hit and start winning yeah. it back? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, number one, as I said, number one is just get rid of all your notifications off all, all your devices. Yeah. So I don't have any notifications on any of my devices and I tell everybody, you know, who I work with and so on, if they need to get in touch with me and all my loved ones and stuff, that if they need to get in touch with me to call me because these things are, are amazing that you can actually talk on them and they'll actually call. And so if, you know, somebody needs me, they call me. And if they don't need me, then they'll send me a text, but I don't get a beat when that happens. So I'll look at it, you know, three times a day and then I'll get back in touch with them, which frees me up to do what I want to do rather than be constantly on yeah, that. Um, the number one thing, the best thing for our mental health, the best thing to actually activate more of our brains is actually just to socialise with someone. So let's sit down and talk to someone. Even better, of course, is we also need more exercise. So go for a walk with someone and actually just talk to them. Leave the phone behind, turn the phone off and actually just chat to someone while you're walking or while you're going for a run if you you know, like running or whatever. Um and that will exercise more of your brain than anything else you can do. Uh, it's better for your mental health than anything else we can do. Any drug that's out there, it's better for your mental health. Um, and, and it's really good for your, for your physical health as well, right? Because you're actually yeah. getting out and actually doing something. Plus, you know, if you, if you go on different walks every day, then you're going to see different things every day, right? And so that's also good for your, your you know, ex experiencing different things um, and that curiosity buzz that we get. Uh, whenever we're out doing different things so yeah have it have it go for a walk with someone um, or sit down and have a coffee with someone um, have a beer with someone those things are really really important um, and as I said they act they they exercise more than our more of our brains than anything else we can actually yeah. do which is really cool 
Yeah, because one thing I started to implement because I, f- I found with my own personal experience, I felt like I was just a zombie scrolling on social media. And I felt like it dragged all my motivation and drive out of me. But I started to use it as a thing like, all right, if I go to the gym, if I go do my exercise, if I do my work, then I can use those things until I could start getting a better um, routine around using those. Do you think that's a good way to do it as well? Like if you need to somewhat detox from the hits that social media and these things give you, it's a user reward system as first and then eventually win it out. Yeah, I, if, if you do want to do it more slowly than just, you know, completely delete them all then yeah having um it as a reward or having it as a you know you've got to do this before i can do that then that's obviously a more positive way of doing it um much more positive way of doing it and you know having just times during the day that you're allowed to do it rather than doing it whenever you really feel like it um is another good way to do it um deleting them all off your phone is also a good way to do it because then you can only do it when you're on a computer um, which means that you're restricted to being at home or, you know, those sorts of environments. So that also restricts the amount of time that you can do it, which is also a cool way to restrict it. But yeah, anything that yeah. just restricts how often you're doing it and that you're not just doing it constantly is going to be a, a good, a positive thing. Yeah. yeah. And I've got a question for you too, because I know you're a father and I know in today's age, like you see a lot of kids on iPads, like parents give their kids iPads to watch um, TV or to play games. What have you done or what have you seen work for being able to implement this in today's generation, but also making sure it doesn't have the negative effects from it either? Yeah, so I, I, we, we, there's now research showing that kids who, um, the earlier a child gets a device, is given a, a, a device, whether it's a phone or an iPad or whatever, the more likely they are to be diagnosed with ADHD or with or with um, ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, we also know that um, the earlier, if a kid learns to read on an iPad rather than actually read on a real book, um, the, the white matter tracks in their brain, so the, the areas that actually connect all the different areas of your brain together, they're called the white matter tracks, they form abnormally. So there's brain damage being caused by kids that are actually learning how to read on, on screen. So there's uh, actually damage being caused and there's a lot of research now looking into how that's and why that's actually happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we need to be really careful, um, when giving kids any sort of device and access to any sort of device. We now, the gaming disorder is now classified, uh, um, by the World Health Organization and by the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychiatrists as uh, a clinical disorder, along with, um, alcohol, drugs, um, and gambling. And it's treated exactly the same as those. So it's treated exactly the same as as drugs. Um, and we also know that it's a gateway drug to, or it's a gateway to uh, gambling and then to alcohol and then to drugs. So if you get hooked on gaming, you're then much more likely to get hooked on ga- ga- um, gambling and then onto alcohol and then onto drugs. So we need to be really careful of those things as well. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, restrictions are really important. We need to teach kids. I mean, my my I have a teenage daughter and a son who's almost a teenager. My daughter, we gave we got her a mobile phone when she went to high school because her high school's a fair way away from here, and she has to catch a bus, and then she goes to 
dancing and things after school. So we wanted a way that she could contact us, you know, if the bus didn't turn up or if something happened. Um, but then when she gets home, she then plugs it in with our phones um, and we all have them plugged in as in a common area. Um, yeah. None of us have our phones in our bedroom. None of us have any devices in our bedrooms um, because of the fact that it's, it's important if you are a parent that you demonstrate the same behaviours as you want your children to do because they're going to mimic your behaviours. And if you've got your phone in your bedroom and you're looking at social media and all these things, then they're going to do the same thing. And we know that it really does have a significant impact on their mental health, on the number of friends they have, on loneliness, on um, you know likelihood of having eating disorders, you know, increases in um, autism spectrum disorder and um, attention deficit disorder. So they are having significant in negative impacts on these kids and these teenagers. So we need to be really careful of that. But even more than that, they are really dangerous. I mean, TikTok now, teenage girls are being paid on TikTok by pedophiles to do erotic dances for them, right? They can actually do that. They can actually pay these girls and they do pay young girls as young as 10 to mm. do these things. Um, yeah, pedophiles can go on there and pretend that they're a, they're a fourteen year old or a twelve year old or whatever, and then meet up. And they are doing these things. They're, they're, this is not something which you know I'm I'm carrying on about. This is actually occurring and occurring in a really really big scale. So having allowing your child to have these devices in their room by themselves when you're not there and they've got their door shut, you know. You're allowing them. You might as well let them go down to the pub, yeah, at twelve, you know, and hang out there because it's the same people. It's it's worse people. It's probably far worse people because at least my local brewery, I know most of the people who hang out there. Um, but yeah, we we need to be really careful. We need to be much more careful than we are. We're at a real crossroads at the moment, and we need to decide which way we're going to go. Um, but we're giving our attention and we're giving our time to multinational companies that are making billions of dollars um, out of our kids' mental health um, and our kids' you know, brains uh, that I don't think, if we, we've, I think if, if a lot of people knew the damage that's been caused, they, they would be, yeah, quite horrified. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you shared that because I'm not a father yet, but I plan to be in the near future. And I was always concerned or worried about how to go around that because i've seen the effects it can have like you said with the tiktok what's going on with people grooming young people as well is a concern like even if your intentions are pure initially it can always lead to a dark place because you don't know who's on there and also the negative effects has on your mental health as well yeah no it is it's really bad and then i mean i haven't even brought up i have a very good friend who's by multiple good you know, colleagues who are, are psychologists who now spend 100% of their time working with porn addiction in, you know, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and and the awful implications of that and what's actually going on there and and the, the violence towards women because of porn addiction um, mm -hmm. is, is really horrifying. And the number of girls now that are turning up to, um, to, to, to uh, hospitals with anal tears and things like that at very young ages because of what's um, available on porn sites and stuff. And I'm not anti-porn, but I am anti-porn being given to and have you know, access by you know, kids who are under 18 who don't know exactly what it's all about and, and mm -hmm. then learn that this is actually appropriate when it's actually not appropriate. Um, so, yeah, we need to be a lot more careful um, with what's going on. 
um, and, and be a lot more careful with that whole. And I mean, I, I often get parents and people say, but hang on, kids need to you know learn how to use these things because everybody's using them. But who doesn't, you know, who's ever met a six-year-old who can't use an iPad? I mean, yeah. the, these things are ubiquitous across society and have become such a big part of our society because they are so fucking easy to use. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous how easy these things are. My, my mother had dementia and she she did a one-hour course on on how to use a laptop and was able to use a laptop. And she had dementia. At the, she had mild cognitive impairment at the time and was yeah. still able to use a laptop. So we don't need to give a kid a, a phone at the age of 10 um, so that they can learn how to use a phone when they're when they're twenty fives, right? They'll yeah. they'll they'll learn it later on. I never had any devices when I was a kid, and um, you know I ended up being able to program in six different languages. Um, we we can do these things later on, um, and kids need to be kids, and teens need to be teens, and they need to have friends, and they need to socialize, and they need to do all these things. And also the the twenty first century skills that kids actually need to learn. All all of the data now shows that. The skills they'll they'll need in the future are, are um, emotional intelligence, uh, communication ability, leadership ability, uh, being able to collaborate with others. You know, all of these things you actually learn by actually socialising with people, and you don't socialise on devices. So, yeah. you know, giving them devices because you think they need those later on, they actually don't. Those aren't things they actually need. What they need to do is sit down and talk to people and learn how to actually communicate with people and how to how to respond to people and how to read people's facial expressions and how to read their body language and how to you know mimic someone so that they'll actually like you. And doing these things is what's really, really important for the future. So at the end of the day, like when you get out of social media, your house is made out of bricks, your bed's made out of wood, like everything's still real. So it's being able to make sure that you're so tapped into the real world and then the social media online world can just be an extension to be able to help market or help advertise whatever it is you're doing in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ironic thing is I have a good friend who's, well, two good friends, they, they co-own a an architecture firm together. And they said it's really, really frustrating because this, the grad students who are now coming out of university who are doing architecture, they're all learning how to do it online with these really cool apps, these cool things that'll actually design houses for you and everything. But then they get them um, and they actually design a house and then the builder goes to build it and you can't actually physically build it because it doesn't actually work. It works online, but doesn't because this doesn't meet that or this door won't open here or this won't, you know, all these things. And as they said, when they learn architecture, they actually built models. Um, and when you build a model, you can actually see, oh, you've got to have a truss here or else this will fall down or you've got to have this here or it won't cantilever or yeah. whatever. But when you do it online, you don't need any of that. And so all of these architect students are coming out with no practical skills. They can't actually design a house, but they can build these beautiful models online that aren't practical, that actually can't be built. Um, and then they have to retrain them in how to actually you know, design a real house that can be built by someone who has has a has a has a hammer and, and nails and a piece of wood because that's what we live in, right? That's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. It's quite crazy, crazy situation. Because, <laughs> like, I'm I'm a kinesthetic type learner. If I read something online and try and do that physically in the world, it just doesn't translate. But if I learn hands on, like, it just clicks instantly. Yeah, and that's so important, right? Whenever I take, you know, I spend a lot of time 
talking to teachers and teaching teachers and working with schools. And I always talk about what, the, the best way to teach any student is to tell them what you're going to teach them, show them what you're going to teach them, and then get them to do it, right? And actually get them to physically do it because that's been shown to be the best way, you know? Show, tell, do is the best way to actually teach anybody um, yeah. because you get all those three experiences and we get all those three different modalities. And so you actually learn it so much better when you do that. Mm. Yeah, like when I, I used to be a carpenter and that's how I learned how to be a carpenter was by showing up at the job site, he'll tell me what to do, show me how to do it and then I'll do it. But if my boss at the time sent me home with like an online package, like watch all these videos, come in tomorrow and do this. And like I'll, I'll get to work the next day and I'll probably be fired because I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's the sad thing, right? It's so much stuff now, all, all of these courses are all online. And so kids aren't, kids and teens and adults aren't, getting to actually learn it properly. And we know people don't learn as well online. We know huge amount of research now showing just reading something on a piece of paper rather than reading it online results in less retention if you actually read it on a screen compared to a piece of paper. You don't actually remember the information as well when you read it on a screen compared to a piece of paper. But also watching a video, you don't retain that information anywhere near as well as you do if you actually see it in real life. There was yeah. cool studies done um, with with toddlers where they actually told the toddlers oh there's there's so they set it up so there, there was a window and then there was actors behind the window but they told the toddlers either oh this is a video and we're going to show you this video through the, on this screen um or there's actors behind the window and you can wave to them um and they're going to do stuff and and then they actually tested them afterwards to see how much they remembered and they remembered far less when they told them that it was a video versus telling them that there was actually actors behind there because we actually learn better from real people than we do from a screen. Because when it's a screen, it's not a real person. We see it as virtual. And so we don't actually remember or bother to actually remember it as well automatically. Yeah. yeah? Because it's actually video. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw you talk about uh, once about how like reading the book compared to reading like things online, there's a big difference between that. Because I found with myself, if I read something online, I'll skip like four sentences and just try and pinpoint the information I'm looking for. If I'm reading like an actual book, like I won't miss a sentence at all. Yeah, there's a huge yeah. amount of research now showing that we we retain the information far better if we read it on paper than if we read it on a screen. Um, we skim when we read on a screen. We also assume that we'll have access to it later because we've got these things in our pockets all the time. And so we don't bother actually remembering our brains to sort of go, uh, that's not really that important because I'll have access to it later. Whereas if you read it on paper, if you read it on a book, you don't know whether you'll have the book there tomorrow. So therefore you actually concentrate more on it and you add read line by line, you actually read each word rather than actually just skimming over it the way we do when we're online. Um, but there's also links and anchors associated with it too, because you've got all the visceral experience of actually turning the pages and stuff. All that actually also adds to your memory that you actually form, which means that you remember it better, which you don't get any of that when you're actually online. So, you know, I really feel for all these teenagers and kids who are uh, uh, all their textbooks and how online, uh, because they're going to struggle to actually remember the information. And we know that, right? Uh, for the first time in history, um, our community is getting dumber. Um, and that's never happened before. Um, we've always got smarter since we've been actually recording intelligence for the last 120, 130 years. But in the last 10 years, we've actually started to get dumber um, because of the fact that we're now all online and we can't attend to things for as long and we're skimming over stuff and we're not actually concentrating as well as we used to. Yeah, it's because like, it feels like today we are using our phones as our second brain 
Like we're using it for our memory database where we put everything in, then we rely on that to remember for us. Is there anything we can do in the real world to help us improve our memory? Yeah, so um, Deeks, having notebooks, taking notes, because you know you're, yeah, you go. Because <laughs> we know you remember better when you're actually right. Um, with pen and paper, um, you'll actually remember the notes. Even if you can't, most of my notes, I can't actually read myself, but I remember the information just because I've written it. And so yeah. huge amount of you know, research now showing that you remember better when you write compared to type. Um, there's some cool research now showing that kids that learn to type rather than write actually can't read as well as kids mm -hmm. that learn to write with pen and paper. We're not sure why yet, but that's a really interesting one as well. But um, yeah, using notepad to actually write things because you not only you know have the visceral experience of actually writing, you're also each time each letter is actually different that you form when you're actually doing it, which you don't get when you're typing because you're actually just hitting buttons. Um, but you also have links and anchors, so you remember the information based on where you wrote it in your notepad and how you wrote it in your notepad and all those sorts of things. So I, I always, when I work with teachers, I always talk about the fact that I used to have um, first year neuroscience course that I ran, I started and ran for many years. And I used to have over a thousand students in that course and every year they'd all come in and I could always tell the ones that would get the high distinctions because they'd walk in with their notepads and they'd walk in with a bunch of stationery, um, you know, or, or a, a little bag full of pens and stuff and they'd be writing you know constantly and all the ones that I knew would be coming to me halfway through the semester saying I'm struggling or failing the mid semester test were all the ones that had the laptops and sat up there with their laptops up who probably gaming or looking at porn or something in the background while I was lecturing um but who knows but even yeah. if they were typing notes that wouldn't be retained as well yeah, that makes so much sense because when you go on your notes on your phone, you can in the search bar, you can just type in the keyword and it'll bring up all the notes of that keyword. But if you learn how to write with a notebook, I found with myself that I can actually like identify which part of the notebook I've read it in because of like how far into the pages I was writing or how far into the book I went into writing that certain thing. Because like with notes, if I try to go on my notes and find a certain note, I'm useless with it. So I try and type a keyword. So I try and rely more on the actual physical copies and actually prefer having these myself. Yeah, yeah. I've got drawers full of notepads that I often go back over and I'm like, well, that was a really good idea or whatever. But again, I pick up the notepad and I all of a sudden know, you know, oh, that's when I was thinking about this or yeah, halfway through there was when I was thinking about that and whatever. Um, yeah. And it's a whole experience of doing it. Um, and the different notepads that you have and how you actually write in them and where you're writing them, all that information gets downloaded into your brain so that you actually remember that information better, which you don't get yeah, on devices at all. Mm. Is there any new interesting or exciting breakthroughs that you're aware of at the moment in the cognitive neuroscience space? <laughs> There's always cool <laughs> stuff coming up, um, which is really, yeah, really exciting. Um, there's a, one, one area that I, I think, like, you know, everyone's probably going, oh, he hates technology, but I don't. I, I actually love technology. Um, and being a neuroscientist, it was, you know, my bread and butter. I was actually one of the first to use AI to analyse brain imaging data when I was at MIT, um, which was one of my yeah, very uh, important publications. But I used to, um, a, a couple of times I went, well, I used to work with Canon, um, but I also sat on a... Um, think tank for uh, Fujitsu and one of the things when when I was sitting on on the, on the 
panel uh, for Fujitsu where we were talking a lot about uh, was augmented reality. And, and I, I find it really sad because I think that uh, the multinational tech companies are, 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 are focusing on virtual reality rather than focusing on um, augmented reality because with virtual reality, you're, you're, you're confined, right? You actually get sucked into this little world where you don't know what's happening in the real world. And so therefore they can keep your attention. They can control your attention, which is what they want to do because that's how they make money. And so they're avoiding and they're actually, I think, I personally think stifling the research in augmented reality because with augmented reality, you're actually in the real world and it's just, um, is added to the real world. But the research that's been done there and has been done for a long time now is really, really cool. And I think it could really, really change the way we live. But yeah, sadly, it's not been taken up by the multinational yeah, media companies because of the fact that you don't, you're in the real world, right? Yeah. Um, but that's really cool. So I've seen some great stuff um, where, you know, you can wear a pair of glasses and somebody else can wear a pair of glasses and they're normal glasses so you can see the world but then you can just add to that right so yeah. if if i want my house to be um you know all my walls to be blue and my wife wants all the walls to be green then we can have it that way so i can have all the walls blue and she can have all the walls green and that's the way they are and that's the way i see them in my when i'm wearing my glasses and that's the way she sees them when she's wearing her glasses or we could both sit there and watch a tv and I can watch one show and she can watch a completely different show, but we can be sitting there watching the same TV, um, but the two shows can be completely different because I've yeah. got my glasses and she's got her glasses on, but we can talk to each other and we can see each other. We can actually have a conversation with the real person. Or you can just set up your, your house with you know a TV on a wall um, without actually buying one, or you can change all your furniture to different furniture, or you know, I can have, you know, uh, yeah, whatever I want in my house. But also um, with older people, which would be really cool, um, who live alone, they could have someone come and just sit beside them um, and yeah. talk to them. And that person could be sitting in their house and they could be sitting in their house, um, but they could be both sitting there talking to each other <laughs> and feel as though the person's actually there through this augmented reality, right? Or they could have a doctor come and actually examine them um, without actually coming because the doctor would be there and then you'd have um, things set up so that they can monitor their heart rate and do all the things that they need to do and wow. sit there and talk to them rather than being online where you you don't have the proper interactions and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really cool. Um, it's been around for a while now and there's some really cool stuff that you can do with it. Um, but unfortunately, vir virtual reality is something which has been targeted and this augmented reality isn't, which I think is really sad because it would have much more impact socially on us all um, and, and would be really cool if we, we did more with it. Um, mm. But yeah, sadly, it's not. <laughs> I'm going to do more research into augmented reality. That sounds so interesting. It's, um, it's really fascinating how quickly and accelerated um, technology is becoming. It must be such an exciting time to be in your position working in the industry. Yeah, it is. It's crazy because, you know, the computers are getting better and better and better. To be honest, like artificial, you know, they talk about AI and all the rest of it. We don't have artificial intelligence yet. What they're doing is, you know, using what I've been using for the last 25 years. It's just the computers have got better and the data's got better. So therefore they look better and it spits out better data for us, but it's really just copying 
what's actually out there. It's not actually intelligent because intelligence requires you to be able to generate new thoughts. And, and yeah. our, the, what we're using at the moment can't generate new thoughts. It's just regurgitating all the stuff that's actually out there, which is why there's big problems with plagiarism and everything, right? And that's why everyone's jumping up and down, especially writers and all the rest of it, because they're saying, hang on, they just it's just plagiarizing my work and that's not fair. Or, um, so, um, yeah, the, but the computers are getting so much faster and so much more capable that, that we are able to do these computing um, stuff that's going to really change stuff. It's not, it's not, I don't think things will go, I don't think we'll get a complete shift until we have quantum yeah. um, computing. Um, I think that's when we'll have a big, the next big jump in our, you know, technology but but at the moment yeah it is really cool because the computers are so good I mean, you can do stuff now uh, i mean you know you, i can run programs now um that are running 10 15 minutes that used to take weeks when i first started in this <laughs> thing you know and, and you'd set it going and you come back the next day and it would have crashed and then you'd have to set it going again and it'd be two weeks later and then it'd crash again and you'd have to set it going again whereas now yeah five ten minutes and the same stuff's been analyzed it's quite amazing do you think that quantum jump is far away or is it in the near future, do you reckon? Uh, yeah, I, it, we've been talking about it for a long time and so it's one of those things. I mean, it's like artificial intelligence, right? We've been talking about it for so long um, that I'm getting a little bit cynical about <laughs> it now. I don't know whether or not we'll ever get there. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I hope it's soon and I hope, somebody uh, with good morals and good ethics actually designs it and has control over it so that yeah. we can change where we are at the moment. Because I think at the moment, there's a lot of people in charge who don't have good morals and don't have good ethics and that, that's causing a lot of strife. So hopefully, um, yeah, that'll actually, you know, that change will, will mean a shift in, in the way we, we treat people and in the way we're actually doing things. Because at the moment, I, I find it a little disturbing. Uh, yeah. what's happening uh, in society um but there's so many good people out there i think yeah hopefully hopefully it will and hopefully it'll be somebody with really good morals will have that all the ip for it and, and yeah. do a really good job and you know, get rid of what, what what the control that a lot of the organizations have at the moment yeah that's it you want to be someone who's going to want to improve the human psychology rather than someone that just wants to you know fill their pockets and use it as a marketing scheme yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. at yeah. the moment there is, there, there's a lot of yeah billionaires out there that are making huge amounts of money off, uh, off everybody. Um, yeah. And, and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And I think that's why like on my social media, on my, on my podcast, I try and speak to people about just becoming aware of their beliefs and being aware of the actions they're taking and like understanding why they are doing the things they're doing. Is that something you do for yourself as well? Like to understand your perception of what your reality is? Yeah, I, I do. I, I'm, I must admit, I think I'm a lot more aware of it now than I was. I think, um, yeah, it, it's something that's evolved over time. And I think we've got to realise that, you know, everybody's coming to us and into our world um, in the best state that they can be. Um, yeah. And so we've got to always realise that we don't know what's happened to people before they've arrived to where they are now. Yeah. Um, but we're all trying, um, and we're all good people, unless you've got some sort of <laughs> significant 
disorder, but you know, 99.9999% of us are really good people, um, and we mean the best uh, for each other. Um, I mean, that's what my book that's coming out is all about, right? It's the fact that we are the connected species, that we've got to where we are today because of the fact that we are all connected, that we all actually collaborated with each other. You know, we're not the fastest or the strongest or the most intelligent animal out there, but we've got to here because we've collaborated with each other and we've communicated with each other and we've, you know, supported each other. And that's how we've got to where we are. And we need to realise that because at the moment we are becoming more divisive um, and we've been split apart. And a lot of that, again, has to do with the, the multinational media companies. Um, that are causing these divisions through the algorithms that they run. But, you know, we need to come back and we need to actually start collaborating with each other. And we need to realise that, you know, that nobody really deserves billion dollars in their bank, right? Because nobody has actually come up with that thing. You know, Bill Gates didn't design the first computer, right? That was done by thousands, hundreds, millions of people, right? Over millions yeah. and millions of generations where we, you know, <laughs> worked out how to, um, make metals and do all those things and then those, you know, and everything that's come forward, you know, the computer I have in front of me, right, that's come from all over the world, bits and pieces and everything else, plus the research that went into it and all of that that's been over, you know, to having individuals who have these huge salaries and then all these people that actually do all the work, you know, on these tiny salaries that they can hardly live on, he's just not sustainable and he's not right because that's not how we got to where we are. We got to where we are because we all collaborate and we need to actually get back to collaborating. Um, and and our our brains have des designed, or not designed, but they've evolved for us to socialise, which, which, you know, causes us to want to socialise, but then also causes division because of the fact that we then know who is an in-group member and who's not an in-group member, and that's all automatic as well. So we need to know and understand that. And that's why things like Facebook and social media are so popular because they, they thrive on that, but they do it in a bad way rather than a good way. And we need to change that and become more good about the way we're, we're interacting with each other um, yeah. and realise that we, we're, all, we're all surviving because of each other. Mm, I love how you touched on that, how important community is because I've seen that firsthand. Um, I've got a friend that owns a non-for-profit called Dad's Community. So it's just a community of dads online to actually catch up face-to-face -face for events around um, at the moment. It's like Southeast Queensland is soon going to expand around Australia. But I've seen the benefits from that because you know, I can see as being a father, you can kind of become isolated and work and looking after your family but then once people step into like a community of other dads and starting to socialize you can see like the benefits that brings to mental health productivity um improvement of relationships with family and wife like it can bring so many benefits to your life by being in a community and it makes so much sense off the back of what you're saying there oh yeah absolutely like we need communities we need um to have people around us that we can spitball with, right? We can actually go, hey, I had this problem. You ever had that? Because it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing, especially becoming a dad. You said you're yeah. hoping to do it soon. It's 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 amazing how many things are thrown up in front of you that you're like, holy crap. And also you reminders of what happened when you were a kid and all those sorts of things and how you want to do things differently. But having people that you can just talk to um, and say, hey, shoot, shoot it's hard. Um, or I shoot, what do I do when this happens? Or what do you do when this happens? Or how do we do this better or whatever? Uh, yeah, it's really worthwhile just having a laugh about how ridiculous a lot of the things <laughs> and a lot of the experiences are um, is really important too. Um, but you sort of, you, 
yeah, when, when you're in it, you, you don't see that until you sort of move out of it and someone else goes, <laughs> you know, yeah. shit, this happened, you know, <laughs> son pissed on me when I was trying to change his nappy or, you know, something like that. And you're like, oh, yeah, that happened to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it's so important. Uh, that's awesome. I would, um, I'd love to finish. I've got two questions for you before we yep. wrap up. Uh, one of them is what um, things do you do to help you keep like a healthy mind and men healthy mental health? Oh, good question. Um, my, yeah, my, multiple things. One is I, I make sure I catch up with friends a lot now because I'm not at the university as much um, and because I run my own business. I'm at home in my in this little office quite regularly. Um, and so, yeah, I make sure I catch up with mates um, to have a coffee or go for a walk on a regular basis. Um, I get up at six o'clock every morning and I have my journal, which, you know, in the front of my journal, I have a bunch of um, just little sayings that I like to remind myself of. Um, mm. And then in the, on the next page, I have um, what, I, what I want to achieve in the next five years, what I actually want to achieve in the next five years as big goals, you know, not as just little things. And so that reminds me every morning of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why, you know, some of the crap that I have to put up with is worth putting up with. And, you know, and also reminds me of all the, the good things that are happening, which, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Um, yeah, and when I do that, I get up at six, I have a glass of water, which I skull to begin with, and then I have coffee, and then I read my journal, and then I make notes as to what I'm going to do that day. And then my son usually wakes up about 6.30, 7 o'clock, um, and then my daughter a bit later, because yeah. she's an older teen, um, and things get started. But, yeah, I find that really good, because that just gives me that half an hour three quarters of an hour to actually just set my day. Um, surfing as well, I surf um, and that's my my go-to. Um, often my wife will say, you need to go for a surf, <laughs> get out of here. Um, Cause she's very good at actually knowing when when I'm starting to get a bit stressed and that's, that's a good thing for me as well. Um, but yeah, also catching up with mates, um, either going to the brewery and having a beer or catching up for a coffee I'll make sure, you know, I have a couple of mates that I'll make sure that I catch up with at least once, twice a week. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, go to the brewery, you know, once a month or so these days just because I'm so busy. But, yeah, doing those things is really important. That's awesome, especially with surfing too because, yeah, it's like physical movement, so it's good for that sense, but it's also a way of meditation as well, being out in the water. Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, some it days it's quite crazy. meditative some <laughs> days it can be quite crazy um, but yeah it's, it's also very visceral you know there'd be I don't know I don't, I don't no scientific reason for this but I feel like getting in water just, just resets me um, I don't know maybe that's because that's where we came from originally or something yeah. but yeah getting in salt water is really really good for me um, and just sort of resets me as well. But yeah, I don't have any scientific reason for saying that, but it's good for me. I, I really love it. Yeah, I agree with that because I grew up in a place called Brabi Island. So it's like just an island and swimming yeah. in water feels like a cleanse for me. It feels like I just wash everything off. Oh, beautiful place to grow up. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, nice. Your book, <laughs> The Connecting Species, is coming out in August, I believe, is it? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can pre-order now, um, so you'll be one of the first to get it. But, yeah, it comes out in August. Yeah, looking forward to that. And um, I just want to say I appreciate you coming on today, mate. There was a lot of value, a lot of information. 
and I, myself got a lot from it but i know the listeners did too so we appreciate your time oh thanks ryan thanks for having me along mate no worries at all. Um, make sure you go pre-order Mark's book coming out, The Connected Species, coming out in August. Or if you listen to this past August, it's already out now. So check out the book and buy it. I highly recommend it. And just want to say thanks, mate, and appreciate you coming on. Oh, have a great day, mate.